This is the Dash Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Gamage, and each week we feature educators who facilitate solutions for school communities. And today I am joined by Mr. Jonathan Plucker, a Julian C. Stanley Endowed Professor of Talent Development at the Johns Hopkins University. He's also the podcast host of the Bright Now Podcast, and they're about parenting and educating bright and curious kids from the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth. So I'm really excited for our conversation today and the experience that Mr. Pluckett is going to bring to us um, in this conversation. And before we get into our conversation, though, I want to talk to you a little bit about subscribing to the Dash Podcast now so that you can get update, updates every time a new episode is released and you can subscribe on TreyGamers.com, Apple, or Spotify. And while you're there, go ahead and click the shop button because you will find my newest book, Every Decision Counts, Eight Lessons I Wish They Taught Me in School, on sale for you, your classroom, your school, or your best friend. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get this conversation started with Mr. Plucker. And how are you today, sir? Good. Uh, thanks for having me on, Trey. I appreciate it. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, just to get started, I'm, I want to talk a little bit about your podcast and Bright mm-hmm. Now. You know, you are talking with parents and educators about the curious kids. How did you get started with your podcast? Was that something from you personally, or is this through the Center for Talented Youth? Um, a combination of both. Uh, several of us had a, a similar idea of putting together um, some sort of a podcast uh, that that could really um, uh, basically appeal uh, you know, to all the questions that uh, Bright students and especially their parents um, uh, have, and then also, um, you know, of course, um, educators uh, who also work with Bright kids. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. We're right in the middle of season three. Uh, we start uh, film, um, recording the second half of season three, probably another three or four weeks here, uh, and it comes out later in the spring. Okay. Okay. Good deal. Is it is it a seasonal type of thing where you batch your episodes and release them um, every every so often? Uh, yeah, we I, we're doing roughly um, uh, eight eight episode seasons now, okay. um, and I, I think we're probably um, I I don't know eight eight to ten, um, and I think. Uh, with, the, with, with the occasional bonus episode. Uh, and I, I think we're going to fall into the pattern that we're using in this current third season, uh, Trey, with about half the episodes, not, not long after everyone heads back to school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, the uh, second half, uh, you know, later in the spring, Okay. Uh, to give to give people some things to think about before they head off for the summer. So I I think that's the the general pattern that we're falling into here. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Is there an episode that you've had so far that that stands out as being um, just like your one of your favorites or one of the most um, knowledgeable or informational off the top of your head? Oh boy, we've had uh, we've had so many good ones. I would say that's a really uh, good question, a tough question. Um, probably. Uh, well, I guess I'll go with the episode with Dr. Linda Brody, uh, who is a uh, longtime um, uh, member of the uh, CTY team. We, it was part of our series on uh, searching for colleges, trying to find mm-hmm. that good college fit. Okay. And um, I've, I've uh, known Linda for a long time, and uh, it was just 
uh, well, one, I don't have people in uh, the studio with me a lot when, okay. when I do it. We generally do it like you and I are doing it today from different locations. Yeah. Um, uh, so to have someone sitting like right across from me where we could really interact and sort of share some stories, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, I think it, it flowed really well, which you know is really important. But then uh, I think we got some really interesting information out there for kids and families. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, it's hard to pick a favorite. Um, but, uh, and everyone's been so generous with their time. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's probably the one that was sort of packed full of information for people. I think it's fun to listen to. and It was a lot of fun to do, too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I see through your education journey, you it looks like you've got a lot of evaluation that's going on. I see at Indiana, you know, working in uh, the Center for Evaluation Education Policy, mm. at the UConn Educational Leadership, and now at Johns Hopkins, it's about talent development. Are, are those streamlined and like what, what how, how does how does the evaluation and the talent development and educational leadership, it seems like a progression to me. Um, Interesting. More specificity into what you're interested in research and how did you tell me about your journey through education well obviously i mean i think i think the big theme in all of my work and um i've never really thought of it this way before so that's this is a really interesting question i it um uh data is our friend Hmm. Uh, data comes in all shapes and sizes it's numbers it's words it's stories it's pictures um uh, we live in an age where, uh, especially students today, right, are overwhelmed with data. There's no shortage of data. Yeah. Um, uh, being able to make sense of data, being able to organize data, and being able to share data in helpful ways, mm-hmm. I, I think is just the key 21st century skills. Uh, um, uh, uh, skill, excuse me. I think it's important for uh, your family it's important for you professionally. It's important as you're trying to learn yourself. Um, and uh, so at various points of my uh, career, um, you know, in some cases, I've been the one uh, going out collecting the data. Mm-hmm. In other cases, I'm the one people are coming to and saying, help us make sense of the data. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I think that's all really important. Important. Um, and uh, I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of information that you can go and get on social media now instantaneously that's clearly uh, fake, right? Misinformation. Um, uh, it's, it's sort of the 21st century plague, I think. And, um, you know, how, how do we help students? How do we help a- anybody? How do we help a governor? How do we help uh, the person trying to figure out how to make school lunches. How do we help a school counselor? How do, how do we help anyone make sense of what the good data is and how it can be useful and how to avoid the bad data? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've never thought of my career in, those, in quite those terms before, but as you asked your question, I was like, well, that, yeah. that's kind of how it's worked out. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, when I, I uh, I give lots of talks to um, uh, uh, teachers, community members, policymakers, students even. Um, uh, one thing that someone said after me once, they said, you know, it just it always surprises me that you're not afraid to give us data and everyone hates data so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I, several parts of that caught me aback, obviously. The first part was, like, you're never afraid to share data. It never occurred to me, Trey, in a million years that that's what I was doing. Wow. I, I, I was just organizing information and presenting it to people in ways they hadn't seen before that I thought was especially helpful. Mm. Um, uh, the fact that some people were like, oh, my gosh, he's putting numbers up there. Yeah. Like, what is he doing? <laughs> uh, it, it, it never occurred to me that – I was actually trying to make data feel safe to people. Right. Um, and then the fact that the person who said it so clearly recoiled at the thought of numbers on a PowerPoint slide. And I was like, but it's helpful information, right? Like yeah. we all need helpful information. Um, uh, people are so scared of information now yeah. in many ways. I, I, think, I think we have to think about that too. So um, I, I, I do think increasingly many professions are going to be about data, information, ideas, how, how, however you want to think of them, um, and you know, how to create it, how to use it effectively, and how to sort of separate the good from the bad. Mm. Mm. I, I love, I, I like that response. I think there's a lot of pieces to, to really touch on there. And I want to start with um, one of your, one of the people in your surrounding area, uh, Miss Heidi Ogilvy from the Ann Arundel School District. I had a podcast interview with her and she was mm. talking about how a lot of schools are data rich, but information poor. And it's just yeah. that what you're saying that we have all this information, but if the information is not leading the way that you are um, being culturally responsive in your school or, or building equitable and restorative practices, then what value does it have? And, you know, again, I think you're, I, I have a psychology background and I see you've got an education psychology background. Mm -hmm. I think that helps connect those dots a little better, a little bit better, because yeah. I, I know my, um, I remember research methods and statistics was my least favorite class, <laughs> but, but being able to um, see the data and understand what that data says makes a big difference in the way that people understand. And then the psychology piece of it is just understanding like, hey man, if people don't understand it, they're not gonna wanna listen to it or, or get it. Um, and so I think, you know, when I look at your, your resume on LinkedIn, I see a progression through um, policy and understanding the technical side of education and psychology and moving to the front forefront of that and kind of being a, a figurehead um, with your position as a talent development professor. Can you talk about what that means, talent development, and specifically at Johns Hopkins, because you guys are renowned for your Center for Talent. Right. I, can I share um, a brief anecdote before we get to that? Please. Um, the, the, the difference between data and sort of information that makes sense, the best example that I can give was that a large school district in a totally different part of the country brought me in, and they were really worried about their um, uh, high school achievement data mm. and it's a big district so it has a handful of high schools and they send me all this student achievement data just tons of it and um uh but it was all kind of cross-referenced by who the principal was in each mm -hmm. school each year so i would go into high school you know a and it would have like 15 years worth of uh, student achievement data uh and each year it would say who the principal was and I had to play with it for a couple hours before I realized their biggest problem <laughs> was that they, they never had principals stay for a full four years. Wow. Right? Which, I mean, and I'm not saying four years is a long time, but in four years, you've watched one group of students go mm -hmm. through high school, presumably, right? 
Um, and, uh, uh, and so, but then I pointed that out to them. I said, you know, you kind of, I, I realize that you're worried about this, but you can't really solve this until you look at this other piece of information that you're kind of mm -hmm. glossing over a little bit, which is that you need high school principals to stay longer. Like you need right. to figure out why they're leaving, figure out how, you know, how you can incentivize them to stay longer um, or else how on earth are you going to get students to improve over those four years? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they hadn't really considered that before, but it, it really took someone else to come from the outside, look at this huge spreadsheet. Uh, it was a spreadsheet with lots of different pages of just data point after data point. And it was actually data and information in the headings of each column mm. that turned out to be the most important data in the entire thing. Wow. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, data, lots of data. Yeah. Where are the information? Where are the good ideas that we can extract from it? And how do we prevent against bad interpretations? That's, that's really what we're talking about. Mm. Forward. So mm -hmm. um, now, um, uh, talent development. It, um, uh, this is a very unique position. I don't know of any other uh, professorships in talent development anywhere. Um, and um, uh, I mean, it's obviously very appealing and uh, it is a fantastic honor uh, to have been offered this position and to, and to currently serve in it. Um, you know, I think, I, I, I mean, take a half a step back here. It, um, you know, the field of gifted education has been around for a long time. It has a pretty mixed history. Um, uh, gifted programs have benefited a lot of students and there's a lot of students who could have benefited from them but they were never given the chance hmm. um, because of their circumstances, uh, there weren't good opportunities where they were born, uh, de facto segregation and bias, discrimination, um, and I, I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a, a lot of people out there who were concerned about what I would broadly call, Trey, sort of advanced education, mm -hmm. um, take more of a talent development approach, which is um, less, less focus, uh, focusing less on um, the high performers and focusing a little bit more on the high potential. And I think a big mistake we make in this country, uh, and I'm in a lot of school districts, like I'm sure you are too, and um, yeah, I, I see this a lot. People who have the best of intentions, but they confuse a student's current performance level with their potential. Wow. Those are not the same things, right? And so you can show me a student who you know uh, lives in an impoverished area, um, single or maybe a no parent household living with a grandparent um uh they for whatever reason maybe a third grader working a year or two below grade level that doesn't tell me anything about mm -hmm. whether they have uh whether they have potential wow. they may have all the potential in the world they just haven't had the opportunity they haven't had the safe spaces to really develop it um, that's why I liked mm. the fact that this was a talent development and not a gifted education position. Yeah. Is that I think the 21st century is about, uh, you know, letting kids develop their natural talent, um, 
uh, to the limits of their ability. And uh, that, that, that places more of the onus on us right. and on you know, creating good educational and home environments. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's still a lot of responsibility that goes on each child, obviously. Um, but it's not a child's fault if they don't have these opportunities. It's not a child's fault right. if they have to worry about violence on the way to school every single morning. Um, and I, I just think for a long time, educators, I, I shouldn't say educators because that's not fair. I, people in society in general have discounted the percentage of our students who deal with those and, uh, you know, related serious issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, they don't perform at really high levels. Uh, we wouldn't if we were in those situations. Yeah. And, uh, right? So it's, just, it's really, really hard uh, to sometimes put yourself into those uh, students' shoes. Um, I, think, I think people are getting a lot better about that. I think a lot of educators have, have come to really care passionately about this. Um, I mean, we're not there yet. Oh, right. Lord knows we are not close. But um, uh, I, every day I get a little more optimistic. Yeah. I, I, I touch base with more people. Um, I mean, literally almost every single day saying, you know, we want to try some of these strategies. We yeah. want to see if we can find these low-income students who are really mm. talented. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that was part of the discussion, but it wasn't really part of the national discussion yeah. a decade ago. Absolutely. Now I think it is. And um, uh, so that, that's why being in a talent development position is, uh, uh, I mean, being in any endowed uh, position is a great honor, uh, certainly, especially at one of the world's great great, great mm-hmm. institutions like Hopkins and uh, CTY. But um, the fact that it's a talent development position, I, I think, um, one, uh, makes it even more special to me because it, it really fits the way I'm trying to change the world. Um, and uh, it just makes it a bit more fun, too, I think. In part because, in part because when, 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 you're the, when, when you're the only professor of talent development, <laughs> you get a little leeway. You get to define, right, you get to define whatever you yeah. want to do. So if I see something cool happening over here and I think, you know what? This is tangentially related, but one day it could be related. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about, well, is this, is this really fit the hard, bright lines of what I'm supposed to be doing? Uh, the answer is, well, it kind of does if I think it does. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it gives me a lot of flexibility to be creative, explore new partnerships, um, and quite frankly, do things like go on people's podcasts and have these conversations. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, it's uh, very, very unique. Um, uh, I think I also feel a special responsibility too. Um, uh, you know, I am very, very blessed to be in this position. Um, uh, again, at uh, such an amazing place, at such an amazing university. Um, but then that also means that, I mean, when I say that I'm going to change the world in this position, it means I need to change the world in this position too. Yeah. So uh, I do not take that responsibility lightly. Right, right. We we have to we have to you 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 again you hit on a lot of things. I think, you know, privilege is something you're born into, whether you're you know, and not just race or ethnicity and economic status, but also all of that at the same time. And I feel like when you have that position of privilege, i.e., a position like yours or a platform like we have here, um, it, we we owe it to the people to pay that forward. I had a coach in college who says success is when you 
win for yourself, but significance is when you can do it for somebody else too. Mm. I think creating those That's opportunities. That's a great quote, yeah. Yes, sir. Cre creating those opportunities for students to grow leading experience is a necessity. And I can think back to uh, my college days between 2011 and 15, diversity, equity, and inclusion were just like you're talking about. They were buzzwords. They yep. were coming up, you know, we had diversity affairs councils, we had things going on, but now it seems to be more of a standard. In the year that I've revamped my podcast to focus on education, I'd say 30 to 40% of our conversations are centered around those three words, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think at the beginning of part of what you were saying, when we look at the potential growth versus achievement, right? When we look at map data or, or whatever data we're looking at, you can see the high flyers, but you can see the students that have grown over the course in a year. Right. Maybe they are in third grade on the first grade level, but look how much they grew in this first semester. How do you think the barriers to entry are getting in the way of these opportunities for students to um, be a part of talent development, if, if that makes mm. sense? Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, this is going to sound a little uh, a little vague, but bear with me. Um, it uh, I think the biggest barrier is uh, one of attitude, mm -hmm. and it's the attitude of the educators who uh, work with these students. Yeah, and so. Um, I, I was initially surprised when I started doing this work, Trey, because I would run into uh, principals. Um, uh, we can just leave it generic. We don't need to name uh, name names, but just like a, I was in you know in inner city middle school and talking to the principal, um, you know, and they are you know clearly passionately committed to helping these kids. Mm -hmm. um, and we're like talking about, you know, developing academic excellence, closing excellence gaps, developing talents. And I cannot tell you how many of these conversations ended with someone saying something like, you know what, I agree with you that this is important, but it's just not relevant to me. And mm -hmm. I would always be like, I'm sorry, what do you mean it's not relevant to you? And they'll say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have bright, I don't, I don't have bright kids. You know, this is an inner city school. I only have poor black kids or poor Hispanic kids. Wow. I would say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Those are, like, you've totally missed my point, yeah. which is that uh, that doesn't matter. Like, you know, you actually do have tons of talented kids here. Um, and like the first couple times that happened to me, I have to admit, I went back to friends and said, can you believe someone would say this? And mm -hmm. all of them said to me that the knee jerk reaction of all of them was, well, yeah, of course, you haven't run into this before. And I was like, <laughs> but, but like, these are people who so clearly believe in the kids yeah. at the same time. Yeah. And then they said, yes, that's why these stereotypes are so evil and destructive mm -hmm. is that even people who are there working with the kids, trying to save them, provide them these great opportunities, still fall into the stereotype of, you know, if we can just get them to grade level, if we yeah. can just get them to grade level. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, confusing performance level with potential. Yeah. And um, I, think, I think that, so just, just trying to get, and I, I think you always start with educational leaders, right? Um, and just trying to get them to understand that they could, well, actually, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know, conservatively, five to seven years ago, it was probably fair to say things like, 
well, you know, uh, these problems are tough, but we just don't know what the interventions are. Hmm. Well, you know what? There's been so much research over the last decade. We have a good idea of what some helpful interventions are. Um, so it's not an excuse to shake your head and go, we're never going to solve this horrible problem. This is actually solvable in your, in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, right. And so uh, I, I think it's like solvable soon. Mm. And that's why I'm optimistic, but we have a lot of, um, a lot of attitudes we have to change. Yeah. And, uh, that, that is the biggest barrier, I think. Um, uh, I mean, you and I could talk for hours about, uh, you know, uh, childhood poverty reduction programs and things like yeah. that. That's not where the country is right now. Uh, it hasn't been for a few decades now. I hope we get back to that. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of these interventions don't don't need for us to wait on that. So yeah. just 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 trying to convince superintendents, principals, um, associate superintendents, curriculum directors, special ed directors. No, no, no. Like this is not destiny. Like you have a lot of talented kids, regardless of what they look like regardless Absolutely. of who they live with, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think attitude, you know, that, that thought of attitude being the barrier, the greatest barrier goes back to the point about data and information kind of being confused because you, you know, data rich information poor. And at the same time, you know, if the attitude is something that you can't necessarily see, it's a soft skill or a professional skill. And when we can't see those, the social emotional learning skills, when we can't see those, we tend not to value them as much. And, and But I, I remember there was an article um, with one of the first schools I worked with as a consultant, and they um, continued to, to have everybody that works there read an article by Parker J. Palmer called The Heart of a Teacher. And just mm. to surmise a little bit, he talks about how there's the teaching is not about technique. You teach from the heart and you teach who you are. So if you're coming into a classroom or to a school setting and you have your own bias, your own baggage, your own blind spots, that's what you end up teaching to your kids. So implicitly, if you don't think that you have smart black kids or Latino kids, that's also what you're teaching um, by, those, by the attitude and the beliefs that you portray. And I, I, thirdly, I think that's a great segue to um, the final piece of conversation I want to have is um, the book that you have excellence excellence gaps in education um can you talk a little bit about that and in, in some of the work you're doing in this book here um that helps bridge some of those gaps uh yes absolutely this this has sort of become uh the focus of my work the last few years um uh and um i'm enjoying it uh but the problems that we're talking about are not for the faint of heart to try to solve. Mm -hmm. um, so it is hard, hard work. Um, and, uh, but essentially excellence gaps are achievement gaps at the top end. And I came up with the concept when I was watching people um, at all different levels talk about implementing the No Child Left Behind Act. And um, I could not get them to think about advanced learners above grade level education i kept making the case to people that you know declaring victory again when you got a kid up to grade level when they had the potential to do so much more mm -hmm. 
technically not a victory. It's that's a mile marker in the middle of a longer race. Wow. I, I just couldn't convince people of that. And so I kind of uh, borrowed uh, No Child Left Behind Act language and said, okay, you're focused on closing achievement gaps, but you like everyone's actually focused on a very specific gap, right? And that's mm -hmm. sort of a minimum competency gap. You know, if we could just get everyone up to minimum competency, then like everything's going to be great, you know, and inequality will lessen, et cetera, et cetera. I've never seen any evidence that that's actually a true cause and effect. I think you close inequality and our entire culture starts to really thrive right. when every student, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their parents' bank account, regardless of whether they have parents, um, uh, has the chance to rise to the level of their natural ability. Mm. That's going to be much more than minimum competency. So we came up with the idea of excellence gaps. And, um, you know, and the goal is to close excellence gaps. So we closed minimum competency gaps a little bit during the No Child Left Behind era, credit where it's due, but excellence gaps exploded. They're bigger than they've ever been before. Wow. And um, that is a huge economic problem for this country, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so we've really been uh, studying carefully uh, several of my colleagues, Scott Peters, Karen Rambo Hernandez, among many, many, many others, um, uh, just trying to reorient educators and policymakers around the idea that, um, that excellence gaps are something that you have to monitor carefully. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's a lot more to it, obviously. We should probably have another conversation yeah. today and get into it a little bit more. But I, I, one, one thing that I've noticed in uh, school districts recently, I, I was in a couple districts last week, and um, we, I, we talked a lot about, uh, you know, let's not be confusing current performance with uh, potential, which they definitely got. Um, but just talking about the fact that in, in schools, we tend to declare victory when we start to have equality of participation. And, and it always surprises people when I say this, I don't care about that very much. Mm. I mean, mm. yes, it's almost certainly a necessary condition for what I want, but I want kids of equal ability to have an equal chance at equal outcomes. It's the outcomes that matter to me. So like, great that you got your high school advanced placement courses to look like the demographics of your general student population. But what do your AP scores look like? Wow. Right? So getting kids in there. It's not enough. Right. Because the playing field may still not be level. You may think it may be. Mm. But if those outcomes are still way off, we actually haven't solved the bigger problem yet. Um, so I, I really have been working with districts lately to be okay. Like we, uh, we talk about this in uh, the book in great, great depth. We know how to, if you're trying to find talented kids, we, we have much better research supported strategies to do it. If you're trying to design a much more rigorous curriculum for all students, we have much better studies now that, that really provide some great sort of guidelines or guideposts, if you will. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important outcome is, 
are we closing excellence gaps? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of districts are starting to take seriously that they need to fix these participation problems. Um, and I will help them until I'm blue in the face. <laughs> but I always leave them with, this wasn't the finish line. This is kind of the starting line. Mm. In mm. a year or two, we, again, talking about data evaluation information, right? We have to come back and study this. Yeah. Are, are we closing excellence gaps? Um, if we're not, then we really need to rethink again. Um, if we are, you know, that's what's going to change that child's life who didn't have the opportunity before. It's not getting the opportunity. It's succeeding with the opportunity. Now you've changed that kid's life. You've changed that kid's family, their uh, community, uh, the school, and then it's going to benefit all of us because we're going to have a richer economy and a richer culture. Um, so that, that in a small nutshell is what yeah. we've been doing with excellence gaps. I, I think it's probably the most important work I'll, I'll, I'll ever do in my career. Mm. We're making progress. Um, uh, next time I come on, uh, I can definitely bring some uh, success stories that we can talk about. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of what that's, all about and i'd probably say about 50 to 60 percent of my work now just focuses on trying to help districts close these excellence gaps yeah, yeah. that's important Brid bridging that gap that and what came into my head as you were talking was minimum competency to maximum capacity is kind of oh, where i love that oh my god that's really good trying to move people and you've got some great gym thank you very much as well for volunteering yourself to come on the show again because that was definitely going to be a question <laughs> hey, can I, can I ask you a question? Absolutely. If, if we have time. Um, uh, I mean, so how, how did you get where you are right now? Um, mm. I mean, you're, uh, you're a successful guy. Like, what was, what was your journey? How did you overcome some of these barriers like discrimination? Yeah, yeah that, that's a good question. So in, in, I'm going to put a plug for my book right now just for a second. So every decision counts. Eight lessons I wish they taught me in school. It's kind of my version of your excellence gaps in education, at least now. Okay. It's my first book, and um, it's really kind of summarizes and translates my story into principles for kids that are now in middle and high school. So when I was growing up, I moved um, 11 times by the time I graduated high school. I went to wow. eight different schools. I was in a single you know, just me and my mom for a long time, but had, you know, my dad and my siblings in another household, ended up moving there for like high school and, and all that. But I always had a strong role model and strong mentors in my life that let me see on one end with my mother, what it meant to have love, what it meant to have faith, what it meant to have hope. And it was mm -hmm. my dad who was a lawyer. I got to see what business looked like, what privilege looked like, what success looked like and hustle. And so when I got to see both of those, I essentially got to live rich and poor at the same time, kind of like rich oh, dad, poor dad. Yeah. And, and that really shaped my perspective of the world um, moving forward. And, and just always listening to the people around me and the people that sold into me really helped. So in college, I went to Miami, Ohio, and um, was just so exposed to everything. Now, I was not a... I, I love it there. They, it, it changed my life, and I'm using everything that I learned there right now we're consistently rated number one at least in ohio for undergraduate teaching 
and I understand why, because when I got there, I feel like it's, you know, potential versus those high flyers. I was never, a, um, I graduated high school with a 2.8 GPA. You know, I was on um, the scholastic enhancement program when I went to Miami and, and got extra time on my test and, um, you know, didn't have to take some of the extra classes. Ended up excelling in college with, you know, I had a three point whatever, whatever. But the coolest thing was getting to be exposed to um, psychology, you know, cognitive, abnormal, social. Yeah. Also had a, having a minor in management leadership. I took a lot of black world and Latin world studies. I got to study abroad in Europe and just so many things and play football. So many experiences just helped me make the world flat, if you will. Mm. Um, so coming back from being abroad, I studied abroad my last semester at Miami, Ohio and Luxembourg. We went to 14 countries. When I came back, I realized that I just had, I had to help people. I had to add value consistently for free. I tried to go corporate. I, I, I had a, a job that I was interviewing for, um, before I went to study abroad that was paying $80,000, you know, with a company car and making six figures after four years. But I'm so glad I didn't get that job because my heart is really with um, young people. And so there's a couple of sayings that I have that I really live by. Um, one of them is to have an impact on every conversation that I have. And, and that's just, just being a giver there. The other is facilitating purpose. And um, facilitate means to make easier, Purpose is your reason for doing. So I, I want to make it easier for you to do what you love. And there was one guy that I interviewed and he said, when you see someone live their dream, it makes you either want to be a part of that dream or start living your own. So it, it, it's really been a passion and a love for people that's turned into a process um, and a system to serve people and help bridge some of these gaps in education as well. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, I realized uh, in the middle of it, I came up with like three other questions for you. And then I thought, wait, I'm already starting to interview him for my podcast. So uh, we can put a pin in this here. Okay. And I'm, uh, I'm going to ask you to talk about this some more when I get you on to uh, right now in, uh, in the next few weeks. Okay. Absolutely. That, that, that will be your plan, Jonathan. And before we go, can you let us know where to find you at? on social media or email or whatever platforms you're on? Sure. Um, uh, my contact information is pretty easy to find if they search for me. Uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at um, Jonathan Plucker, uh, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-P-L-U-C-K-E-R, just, just, just like it sounds. Uh, I talk a lot about these issues and more, um, uh, uh, and I'm on there fairly frequently. And then, uh, if anyone has any direct questions, they can always email me at my um, Hopkins address, which is jplucker at jhu.edu. Yes, indeed. That that sounds great. And if you really are easy to find, there's a lot of great content that you put out, including your book, Excellent Gaffney. Excellence Gaps in Education. I've been trying to expand my education book listening. It's definitely going to place that one on there. So thank you so much for joining me today, Jonathan. Anytime, Trey. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to talking to you again soon on my podcast and yours. Likewise, likewise. And, and thank you, everybody, for listening to the Dash Podcast. Go Google Jonathan right now. When you get done doing that, subscribe to the Dash Podcast today on TreyGammers.com, Apple, and iTunes. Remember, this episode is sponsored by the Gamers Consulting Group, and we help schools implement social and emotional learning programs. 
You can learn more about our five-step process or our new SEL workbook for students at TreyGamers.com. We will see you next time. This is The Dad.